want to extend uh, just a special just welcome to guests, or if, if you're new here, we are walking through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And this morning, we're going to be diving back into chapter 12. A quick lay of the land, if, if you're getting your bearings or you're new here, we've rounded the corner in the book of Romans. We've turned the corner from gospel instruction to gospel application. The Apostle Paul spent 11 amazing chapters detailing the ways that God has loved us and will spend the next five remaining chapters instructing us how to love one another. And he starts in chapter 12 with our relationships inside the church, as we saw the last couple weeks. And today, we're, he's going to focus his energy on instructing us to love others outside of the church. Or you might think of it like this. In verses 9 to 13 that Pastor Eric did a wonderful job last week unpacking, it detailed the ways that we should love one another in our church family. And today in verses 14 to 21, he's going to instruct us how to love our enemies. So let me ask you a question. How do you respond when someone snubs you? When somebody attacks you, somebody betrays you, somebody offends you, or as my kids say, somebody throws shade at you. Somebody cuts you down and, and embarrasses you in front of others. What's your knee-jerk response to conflict? Are you a fight kind of person? A freeze kind of person or a flee kind of person? Have you heard that before? The fight, flight, or freeze response? What's your knee-jerk, automatic conflict response? I asked my wife, whom I've been married to 21 years, what my conflict response was, and she just ran away from me. <laughs> no, just kidding. Truth be told, my wife, Julie, my precious wife, she's probably watching this online right now. She's the sole peacemaker in a family of boys who approach conflict like it's a WWE match. Okay, the sole peacemaker in our family. But how about you? What's your response, your knee-jerk response to conflict? Are you more of a fight person? A flight person, a freeze person, or are you a bless those that persecute you kind of person? If that's you, you may very well be more qualified this morning to preach this sermon than me. Now, it's important to remember that the Apostle Paul was writing to a group of people who knew a lot about conflict. Oftentimes, and it's unhelpful to kind of view the Bible as a book that just descended from heaven to earth. These are real people with real problems that Paul wrote this letter to. For one thing, the recipients of this letter, they experience conflicts in their marriages and their friendships and their business relationships, just like you and I do. But secondly, and this is important to bear in mind when we read the book of Romans, that Rome was a very a hierarchical society with clear lines of distinction between the privileged and underprivileged classes. There were different standards of justice, different opportunities for progress, 
for education. And we know from history that the vast majority of Christians in the first century were people from lower classes, which means that most of these people dealt with discrimination and unfair treatment on a regular basis. And finally, we know that in the first century, persecution in Rome was boiling over, culminating in the beheading of the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, but also the public execution of many of the recipients of this letter as they were thrown to the lions for entertainment and sport in Roman Colosseum. So yes, these people knew their fair share of conflict. They knew what it was like to wake up each day in an unjust world where evil is rampant and unfortunately, we haven't made that much progress. We still live in a world where evil and injustice is rampant, a world filled with enemies. As evidenced in the heinous hate-filled shooting that took place at the Lunar New Year Festival in California, and also the brutal footage of Tyree Nichols as he was beaten to death by the police. This week, as I was preparing this message, I began to think, what, what do you say to somebody that is on the receiving end of evil in our world? Somebody that perhaps today is waking up with feelings of vengeance and confusion. Where do you turn in the whole council of scripture when you wake up and you have an enemy? Well, I believe there's no better place to turn than Romans chapter 12 and the counsel that Paul offered to the church in Rome. So today, if you have your Bible, open up to Romans chapter 12. We're gonna be jumping back in in verse 14 this morning. Bless those who persecute you. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 17, not verse 14. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. We have our work cut out for us this morning. <laughs> In these five verses, you and I are called to do a number of things that quite frankly, run against the grain of our natural inclinations, don't they? As a result, these and other verses in scripture that instruct us to love our enemies are often disregarded or watered down or just plain ignored by Christians. 
However, we do well to remember the warning of the Croatian theologian Miroslav, Miroslav Volf, who witnessed the horrendous acts of evil during the Serbian war that led to concentration camps, the rape of thousands of, of women in his country, the displacement of half a million people in the early 90s. So this man knew conflict, not in the abstract, but witnessed it and the horrors of evil and injustice firsthand, reflecting on the call to love our enemies by Jesus, Miroslav Volf said, if you take the love your enemy out of Christianity, you've unchristianed the Christian faith. That's pretty intense. But if we believe that, and Wolf is right, and I believe he is, and we take Jesus' own call to love our enemies seriously as his disciples, how in the world do we do this? It's not our automatic response. How in the world do we do this? And that's where Paul's counsel in Romans 12 is gonna help us today. So if you're taking notes, here's the basic structure of Paul's exhortation to love our enemies at the end of Romans 12. He gives us two dangerous things to avoid. He gives us two extremely difficult things we must pursue. And finally, he's going to tie it all together with the power that enables us to actually do this. So what to avoid, what to do, and the power that enables us to live this way. Okay, first and foremost, the first thing that Paul starts with is actually something that we need to avoid, something that is dangerous. And so he instructs the church in Rome to avoid retaliation, to avoid retaliation. In verse 17, where we jumped in this morning, Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. In other words, if you get attacked, don't attack back. If someone insults you, don't insult back. Don't retaliate against the evil that's done to you with evil deeds or words and thoughts and inclinations of your own. Don't repay evil with evil. Now, here's what's so fascinating. According to Paul, the reason that you and I should not retaliate when someone sins against us is not to be passive or to ignore the evil deed that has been committed. It's to avoid being overcome by evil. That's why Paul summarizes his exhortation and ends in verse 21 by in telling us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, you're not really in charge when you're overcome with hatred and malice. You might think you're in control, you're really not. You're doing what the evil wants you to do. You're being molded by the evil when it takes root in your life and you retaliate with evil 
when you've been sinned against. What's fascinating about the Greek term that Paul uses that's translated overcome in most Bibles, it's the Greek word niko, which is a military term. It's the idea of waging a strategic assault against your enemy. That's why I like the J.B. Phillips translation. Does anyone even read the J.B. Phillips translation anymore? It's really good. It's really good. It's helpful when you're dissecting a passage of scripture to read an array of many translations. I like how he translates verse 21. J.B. Phillips says, don't allow yourself to be overpowered with evil. Take the offensive, overpower evil by good. It's this picture of of this war between good and evil, not only in the person that has offended us and our enemy, but a war within, a war within yourself. Those are the two battlefronts that this war takes place. So Paul warns us and he says, if you attack evil with evil, evil will always win. It will always overcome if you attack evil with evil. Instead, attack evil with something more powerful and good. Attack it with love. The great civil rights activist, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Of course, the pioneer of this radical concept of non-retaliatory love for our enemies did not originate with Martin Luther King Jr. or the Apostle Paul. It came straight out of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, so much of Romans chapter 12 actually is inspired directly by Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to show you in Matthew chapter 5 how these verses connect with this exhortation to not repay evil for evil. You still with me this morning? All right. Awesome. All right. Jesus' words, Matthew chapter 5, to his disciples, he says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So retaliation, it's a retribution idea. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, the truth is this verse trips a lot of people up and they ask, what does it mean here to not resist the evil one or to turn the other cheek? If somebody is physically attacking you, are you supposed to stand there and just keep taking it? And that's not, as we'll see what Jesus is actually endorsing here when he says, do not Resist the one who is evil. In fact, I was reading a commentary this week and it suggested that the idea, it might be a more helpful translation of this sentence in Jesus' context to say, do not resist the one who is evil with evil. 
Do not repay evil with evil. Don't resist evil with evil, which fits the context, as you'll see, of Jesus telling his disciples to turn the other cheek. Now, I want you to notice something. And it's important when we're reading our Bible to pay attention to every word. When Jesus instructs his disciples to turn the other cheek, he gets super specific. So can we put verse 39 up there? Jesus' words, if anyone slaps you, not just on any cheek, but on the right cheek. Have you ever noticed that? Anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If you ever wondered why, why the right cheek? You see, here's what's fascinating and incredibly helpful to understand the context of Jesus' exhortation here. Jesus lived in a right-handed world where left hands were only reserved for unclean tasks. Therefore, if somebody was to approach you and they were going to slap you, they would use their right hand. And so if somebody was facing me, I was gonna ask for, for actually a, our participant this morning so I could illustrate this, but that would just be mean. Um, it'd be kind of funny, but it'd be mean. Um, I was gonna call Isaac Peterson. I love him, like up here and, and, and I'm not, I'm not. You can pray for me. We're all a work in progress. Okay, so somebody came up this morning and, and they, were, they were going to attack me um, with a slap and they were facing me. They'd have to use the back of their right hand to slap my right cheek. Does that make sense? If somebody's, somebody's facing you. Now, this kind of slap, it was not meant to injure someone, to slap someone on the right cheek. It was meant as an insult to their honor. Very important. The aim of a slap is not to injure or to assault and take somebody out. It's to, to actually attack their honor. The person slapping your cheek is not trying to kill you. No school of martial arts tells you go for the cheek slap. Okay, does that, does that, are you with me? Okay, so it's about honor. It's about honor. And even in the context of Romans 12, don't repay evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable about in front of everyone, what's honorable. Jesus lived in an honor-shame culture. So Jesus, in telling his disciples to turn the other cheek, is not talking about a physical power relationship where somebody is abusing you. More on that in just a second. But if somebody slaps you on the right cheek and insults you, dishonors you, in the first century, you had one of three options, okay? You could slap them back, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a slap for a slap. You could do nothing. You could just keep taking it and never confront the evil and the sin that's done to you, which the Bible doesn't condone or command us to do. Or you could turn the other cheek in an attempt to say to the person that has slapped you, insulted you, I wanna have a relationship with you, but I'm not gonna stoop to your level. So I'm going to turn my cheek. I'm gonna turn my left cheek to you. And if you slap me again with your left hand, you actually are admitting that your action is unclean. It's unclean. I thought it, this was interesting as we've witnessed so many heinous 
acts of violence lately, school shootings, violent act after violent act. Pope Francis, in addressing the audience, referred to Jesus' words here. And listen to this quote. This was so helpful. He said, turning the other cheek is not the loser's fallback, but the action of those who have great inner strength. Turning the other cheek is to overcome evil with good, which opens a breach in the heart of the enemy, unmasking the absurdity of his hatred. And this attitude, this turning of the cheek, is not dictated by calculation or hatred, but by love. By love. You see, instead of condoning evil, Jesus was teaching us as his disciples how to overcome evil creatively, nonviolently. Now, I need to take a moment here to drive an important point home for perhaps some who are here today or listening online. Neither of these passages mean that you're supposed to stay in abusive relationships especially those where you are criminally taken advantage of or assaulted. Sometimes people assume that the Christ-like posture and response in those relationships is to just keep enduring the evil. But what Paul's going to follow this passage in Romans 12 up with in Romans 13, which we'll get to next week, He's going to explain that civil governments exist to execute justice for situations like that. They are God's instruments of justice and peace. They're established by God to give protection to those that rely on them. And so if you're in a relationship that is abusive, particularly criminally abusive, sometimes the most loving, wise thing you can do is reach out to the authorities that God has established. Over the last decade, our church has partnered with a ministry called ARMS, which stands for Abuse Recovery Ministry Services. They have groups for both men and women that are impacted by domestic violence. And also, I just wanted to pass off to anyone that is in a situation like that, that the hotline for domestic violence if that's your situation, you need to know that this church is a safe place. You can reach out and we're here to pray with you and stand with you. Secondly, after instructing us not to retaliate, the Apostle Paul gives us the second dangerous thing to avoid, and that is revenge. We're supposed to, as disciples of Jesus, avoid retaliation and avoid Revenge. While retaliation is something that we do outwardly through our words and our actions, revenge is something that we harbor inwardly. And Paul exhorts us in verse 19, tells the church, Beloved, never revenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. Did you notice how Paul addresses the church there as beloved, beloved ones? There's, there's a tenderness here that Paul, Paul makes sure 
to not leave out because he understands how difficult this is, how painful, how costly it is not to take vengeance upon yourself, to sit in the seat of the judge when you're sinned against, to surrender your desire for justice, to get even over to God, to allow him to be the judge over your enemies instead of you. And so he tells the church, beloved, beloved, don't avenge yourselves. Don't repay evil for evil because we have a God that says, that's mine to repay. One of the most beautiful displays we've seen in modern times of this principle, not taking vengeance. We witnessed it in the aftermath of a terrible shooting at Emmanuel Church in, in Charleston, South Carolina. One of the men whose wives and his children were killed by Dylan Roof had an opportunity to speak to Dylan in the courtroom, and these were his words. I forgive you, son, and my family forgives you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Jesus Christ, so that he can change it and change your attitude. I read an article this week in which this man was asked four years later if he had any second thoughts, and he said, I always get asked that. And people want to know why, even if he did repent, why I would never forgive the man who murdered why I would ever forgive the man who murdered my wife. And this is the man's response. He said, my answer to them is always the same. I chose to forgive the racist killer because I believe and trust God's word when he tells me that vengeance is his to repay, not mine. I need not avenge the vile deeds of Dylan Roof myself, because scripture tells me it's mine to avenge. I will repay, quoting from Deuteronomy. Scripture promises me. Folks, these are the words who under, from someone who understands the gospel. This is what it looks like to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, as Paul told us to do back in verse nine earlier in Romans 12, to not repay evil for evil and continue the cycle of injustice and violence. Instead, to extend forgiveness to our enemies and allow God to be the judge. Now, here's what is interesting. When this statement came out, there were many people who were outraged because we live in a, in a society that prefers vengeance and retaliation over mercy. And so people were mad. However, this is what we always need to remember, River West. 
When we hold on to revenge, the evil that's done to us begins to take hold of us and control us. In a sense, we become like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings. My precious, my precious. We hold on to revenge, and guess what? It deforms us. It enslaves us. It controls us. So we become instruments and almost puppets of the vengeance that we're holding on to. Folks, apart from the gospel, we are powerless to overcome evil and wish anything but vengeance against the people that hurt us. You understand that. Apart from the gospel, we are powerless to overcome evil. We do not have hearts that want anything but vengeance and retaliation for enemies. But through Christ, it's actually possible to forgive and even love our enemies, to not be overcome by evil done to us or those that we love, but rather to overcome evil with good. Now, in order to do this, Paul tells us we must be willing to not only avoid things that are evil, but to do good. Two good things that Paul instructs us to do. The first, pursue peace with everybody. Pursue peace with everybody. In verse 18, Paul tells us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, this all that Paul tells us we should pursue peace with includes enemies and the people that you're, you and I are at odds with right now. And isn't it true in our day and age, just a moment of honesty, it's way easier to avoid or cut off difficult people versus pursuing peace with them. Can we just admit it's way easier just to cut them off from your life, cancel them, move on, delete them, replace them. Someone in your church community says something that you don't agree with and you don't like, leave, find a new one. Have a disagreement with a coworker, just avoid them or pretend to go to the restroom whenever they approach you. Irritated by what someone posted on social media, just unfriend and block them. It's commonly accepted in our society that the way to experience relational happiness and peace is to just cut people off the moment they say or do anything offensive or hurtful. So case in point, this week, I ran a Google search on how to be happy in the Google query. And one of the articles that showed up had several priceless pearls of wisdom, including compliment yourself often, and if possible, on a daily basis. Just give yourself like daily, daily compliments. That's just precious. That is, wow, Google, thank you. But another one that struck me was this. Listen to these words. Seek out positive relationships with happy, optimistic, and cheerful people. If you're struggling with your current relationships, just seek out new ones. In other words, the moment that people just get difficult, just, just cut them off. Like, delete them, replace them. 
Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that there's not times when it's healthy and wise to have boundaries or cut off a relationship that's abusive or toxic. In fact, the gospel writer John noted in the second chapter, you can look, Jesus did not entrust himself to the religious leaders of his day because he knew the condition of men's hearts. So even Jesus had some boundaries. He didn't entrust himself to, to everyone. He was wise in his relationships, yet sought peace with everybody. Now to be very, very clear here, making peace and forgiving people after they've hurt you is really, really difficult. It's really hard. And the truth is there's no easy one size fits all way to pursue peace with everybody. I can't just give you a simple acronym and just say this will always work in your relationships. It's complex. It takes a ton of prayer, humility, discernment, friends that will be courageous enough to exhort you and push you into situations where you need, you need to be encouraged to have a difficult conversation. And sometimes in spite of our best efforts, peaceful resolutions in our relationships aren't always possible. That's why the apostle Paul, in, in spite of giving us this lofty charge to pursue peace with everybody, on the front end he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you live at peace with all. Which means that sometimes peace is not possible in a relationship, even though you've done everything on your end to pursue peace with somebody. However, perhaps before we cut people off or give up on a difficult relationship, what if we stop to pray for the people who've offended us? Like Jesus instructed, his disciples to do once again in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, Jesus instructs his disciples and says, you've heard that it's said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Friends, it's really hard to hold on to hatred and malice when you're praying for somebody that's hurt you. Maybe right now the first step towards peace that God is calling you to take is to pray for that person that you're at odds with right now. And although this might not immediately or even eventually restore the relationship, one thing's for certain, it will set your own heart free. It will set your own heart free as you pray for your enemies. Finally, as if all of this wasn't hard enough, <laughs> to avoid retaliation, to not harbor vengeance and revenge within, and to pursue peace with everybody, even the enemies that offend us. Paul concludes his exhortation by telling us that we should be kind to our enemies. 
We should actually pursue opportunities for kindness. Aren't you loving this sermon? Gosh, this is so hard. But it's right here. In verse 20, Paul tells us to the contrary. Instead of retaliating, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Instead of retaliating, harboring vengeance within, cutting people off, just a plain avoiding them, this passage tells us to overcome evil by extending kindness and goodness to our enemies. If your enemy is hungry, share your food with them. If they're thirsty, bring them something to drink. Now, when we hear these things, I know most of us respond by saying, how in the world do I do that? Am I supposed to DoorDash like Aunt Susie right now and send her a, a meal? But if you keep reading, it even gets a bit more confusing because the verse ends by saying, these acts of kindness function like burning coals on the heads of our enemies. And some of you are like, now we're talking. <laughs> Man, now we're talking. This is exactly like what I feel like doing right now. Scripture read my mind. Where do I get these hot coals? Can I purchase them on Amazon right now? Where do I get such coals? Um, Paul is actually quoting from the book of Proverbs, from chapter 25, verses 21 and 22, the book of Proverbs tells us this. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, we have to be honest, this instruction seems out of character with the rest of the passage that tells us to avoid vengeance and retaliation. But here's what you need to know. Heaping fiery, head, uh, fiery coals on someone's head is a Jewish metaphor. And it was a metaphor when you were offended by someone, by heaping these coals, it would have one of two effects on a person. It would either wake them up to the injustice that they've committed, bring them back to their senses, almost like we say, like pour some cold water on a person. It would function like cold water, wake someone up to the evil that they've done. Or number two, it would increase God's judgment on them in the day that he actually brings justice. God will say to the offender on judgment day, after kindness upon kindness that I showed you, this was how you treated people? And God's judgment will be more severe. It's almost like Paul said in Romans chapter two that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. But if we ignore those burning coals of kindness that God extends, do you remember in Romans to what the result will be, you'll be storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Intense. Sobering. 
But let me ask you this. Isn't this how Jesus woke us up? By extending the coals, not of his vengeance, but his kindness in our lives, hoping that we'd come to our senses and repent of our sins. Over years and years, patiently extending mercy to us. Friends, it's so important to remember that before Paul tells us to do one thing in this chapter, he starts with God's incredible mercy. Remember that? Every exhortation in Romans 12 is anchored to the mercy of God. In verse 1, the first word in Romans 12 is this. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you by God's mercy. Friends, the only way that we can overcome evil with good and love our enemies is not through our own goodness and mercy. It's through the goodness and mercy of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. It's through his goodness and mercy. Whatever you do, do not try to do any of this in your own power without Jesus. It simply will not work. When somebody has wronged you, sinned against you, remember Jesus who was nailed to the cross to overcome evil with, by laying down his own life for us when we were his enemies. You and I, we now have peace with God, but that peace came at such a price. Such a price. It took Jesus' blood to bring us into peace with God. But now, friends, the evil within us has been replaced by God's own goodness. And we can now live at peace with God and with others by God's grace. For some of you, you're here today and it's time to let go of the bitterness. It's beginning to control you. It's beginning to sour everything in your life. Maybe this is the day that the Lord has brought you in here to remember that you were once Jesus' enemy and he has mercy on you. And as we remember that truth, it frees us to do this difficult work of extending forgiveness, pursuing peace with others. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up this morning. We're gonna take our time in response this morning before we come to the communion table and we receive the elements. The Apostle Paul, elsewhere, in writing a letter to the church in Corinth, instructed the church before coming to the table to take an inventory of their own hearts. You're at odds with, with someone this morning. Maybe this is actually a Sunday to not come and receive communion, but first to go and seek out restoration in that relationship, to make that phone call, or to begin to pray for discernment how you can release forgiveness in that relationship. But others that come and receive the elements as you hold in your hands these reminders of Jesus' body 
that was broken for enemies and his blood that was poured out so that you and I can experience peace with God. This is a sacred thing. This is a sacred thing. That we would be in the presence of God, of a God who would keep extending grace and coal after coal of kindness in our life. Would you reflect on how kind, how patient, how forgiving the Lord has been to you and, and have the courage to ask the Lord to instruct you if you need to pursue peace with someone this day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Lord, every word in scripture is inspired and, and these words that are difficult for us to receive, we believe, Lord, that you have a desire to, to bring peace Lord, to our relationships and through us, to our world right now that does not know peace. We, like Paul describes in Romans chapter three, we live in a world that is, does not know the way of peace. Our, our feet, Lord, are so often prone to, to violence, to, to causing so much, so much pain. And yet you love us and you give us the Holy Spirit so that we might become peacemakers in this world. Father, please help us, Lord, to love those that have been unfair and caused us harm. We need your Holy Spirit's help to do that. So please clothe us with power from on high so that the world might see that we serve a God who loves enemies extends grace and mercy to the undeserving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.